Thank you very much for the special music. That was very meaningful. Appreciate that very much. My family and I had a good visit in Merrill, Wisconsin last weekend. We were there for the Sabbath and and uh, a, a get-together. Uh, they have, and I think we had about 114 people there for services from all over the upper Midwest. So a really good Good visit with them and other family along the way. <clears throat> of course, we were sobered to hear the news of, of Dr. Meredith, and uh, I'm sure we all are praying for him and, and uh, his family at this time. Over the next couple of months, we will be turning our focus, we are turning our focus to the upcoming Holy Days. We will be anticipating the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. And we'll be thinking about the, the sacrifice that Christ made for mankind he, when he gave his life. During this time, the next couple of months, Dr. Meredith has encouraged us to be reading the Gospels, um, the accounts of the ministry and life of Jesus Christ, not just the account of the Passover, not just how he gave his life, but also how he lived his life. Because Christ came as an example that we should follow. Yes, he gave his life for our sins, but he also lived his life to show us how we ought to live. There are many lessons in the, in the Gospels we could derive as we look at the life of Christ. But we'll look at a few portions today that highlight his interaction with the Samaritans. Today in, the, in this portion, in the sermon, we will see what we can glean from Jesus Christ and the Samaritans. To start off, let's go over to John chapter 4. We'll see that there are some really interesting and, and powerful lessons from his interaction with this group of people. And it starts off when Jesus is traveling in John chapter 4 and verse 1. It says in John chapter 4, and you might want to put a marker here. We will be coming back to this portion from time to time today. When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, Though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now it's interesting to think about the geography here and how it relates to the relationship between the Jews of Judea and the Jews of Galilee, which was to the north and Judea to the south, and this this land that was sandwiched between the two, called Samaria. And the bitter antagonism that the Jews and the Samaritans had for one another. In fact, commentators tell us that the, uh, there were some Jews that during this time would purposefully, if they had to go from Galilee to Judea or Judea to Galilee, they would purposely cross the Jordan uh, go north or south along the eastern side of the Jordan and then go west into the other portion of the Jews' territory just so they would not have to look at the Samaritans. Just so they wouldn't have to go through the, the region of those dreaded, horrid Samaritans. And they might add a whole day to their journey just so they wouldn't have to go through Samaria. They didn't like him. So Jesus Christ was going to go a different way and he was going to show a different way by this interaction. He says in, in verse, uh, it says in verse 5, So he came to a city of Samaria which was called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being wearied from his journey sat thus by the well it was about the sixth hour. So he was, he was hot. He was tired. It was about noon. He was thirsty. And um, 
He had no bucket, you know, to draw the water out of this well, apparently. So verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9, then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Very telling statement. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Why are you even talking to me? Our people don't talk to each other. Why was this? Let's get a little background. Who were the Samaritans? Where did they come from? We'll come back to John chapter 4. Let's turn over to 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17. And we get a little background, which is very, very important in understanding this story. Of course, northern Israel, the ten tribes, went into captivity by the Assyrians in 721 B.C. What happened to that area in northern Israel after the, uh, the bulk of the Israelites, were the ten tribes, were taken away? 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 23, the last half of the verse says, So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria as it is to this day. Verse 24, Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria, instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its City. So these were all nations, these were all ethnic groups from the east, pagan nations that were then brought in to populate the land of uh, formerly the ten tribes of Israel. And so it was, at the beginning of their dwelling, verse 25, that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they had a slight problem here they had to deal with. The wild beasts were killing too many of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. So in their mind, in their thinking, you had to figure out what the the God of that land, how, how you appease that God. That was their, their way of dealing with these kinds of problems. So clearly they were not doing the right rituals. They needed to figure out what the right rituals were. And so they came up with this solution, verse 27. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now this is interesting because the problem was the priests from northern Israel had been apostate in the first place. They, from Jeroboam on, had introduced a time when they were mixing the truth with error. So now he's coming back and he's going to be the one who teaches them, supposedly, how to fear God. We can see where this is going. We can see that this is a mixture of truth and error already. Verse 29, however, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places where the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities where they dwelt. And it talks about the, the different ones and the, the gods that they, they set up. And even verse 30, 31, the Sepharvites who burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and, and Amalek, uh, horrible things. Verse 32, so they feared the Lord and from every class they appointed there for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. And they feared the Lord. Notice this, verse 33. 
They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods. According to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. So, Jeroboam had already led northern Israel into apostasy, and now one of those priests came back to teach them how to fear the Lord with a mixture of even more paganism. They feared the Lord in name. They honored, they professed to worship the true God, but through serving their own gods. This is the beginning of the Samaritans. No wonder why the Jews had a problem interacting with them. That's where it started. And it went downhill from there. Now, were there some Israelites among the Samaritans? Uh, it, we won't turn there, but you can look for yourself. Second Chronicles 34, verses 8 and 9 uh, gives an indication that there were some remnants of uh, Manasseh and Ephraim who, who, uh, who, who stayed behind. Uh, it wouldn't be unthinkable that some of the poor of the land uh, were there. Uh, even after the mass, vast majority of the Israelites were taken away. But the, the, the majority of those who repopulated were from these other nations. That's, that's the point. So that's the starting point. Then what happened? When the Jewish captives came back from Babylon uh, and they began to rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel, the Samaritans wanted to help. And they said, no, this is not for you. You have no part with us. They were rebuffed. When Nehemiah and Ezra returned from Judea, I'm sorry, returned to Judea from uh, uh, Persia, uh, Sanballat attempted to thwart them. You remember the story how he invited Nehemiah to a conference to come and talk in the plains of Oh No. And Nehemiah correctly perceived, oh no, don't go to the plains of oh no, right? And then according to uh, Josephus, they, the Samaritans eventually set up their own temple at Mount Gerizim and, uh, and in their own priesthood. And in 120 B.C., John Hyrcanus with his army destroyed the temple at Mount Gerizim. So a long and bitter and antagonistic history between the Samaritans and the Jews. That's the point. You know, it got so bad that there were times when to the Jews wanting to insult Jesus Christ in one particular place in John 8, 48, they said, do, do we not say well that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? It's sort of, you know, when you're looking for the worst possible thing you can say about someone... You call them a Samaritan. You get the picture. But Jesus came to show a different way. Let's go back to John chapter 4. In terms of the hatred, in terms of the contempt, the disdain for human beings, he didn't have any of that. Let's go back to what the woman said to Jesus Christ, John 4 and verse 9. The woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews, again, have no dealings with Samaritans. This brings us to our first point, our first lesson in Jesus' interaction with the Samaritans. That is, that Jesus Christ loved and valued everyone. Jesus Christ loved and valued everyone. Everyone who is made in the image of God. All mankind who had the potential to be in God's family. There was so much history. There was so much hatred and, and animosity. And brethren, isn't that easy for us to fall into as well? As human beings, you know, there are ethnic groups, there are nations that have been at war with each other for centuries, for millennia, 
that grow up and teach their children to not look at these other people as fully human. And the hatred and the animosity goes on and on. Or even in our own families or among brethren. You know, sometimes there are hurts, there are offenses, there are insults that can cut, that are can hurt. Inconsiderate things are said. And sometimes family members don't speak for years. For years. You know, today the social media has, has made mean-spirited communication so much easier to fall into, hasn't it? Because you don't have to look at the person you're writing about. You don't have to look them in the eye. There's a distance, there's a barrier, and that's why it's unwise to fire off an email or fire off a post without really letting ourselves cool down. Because you can't take it back. And in this world where Satan is, is stirring up hatred and stirring up division and stirring up antagonism, we must be people of patience and consideration and love because that's what Jesus taught. You know, in 1 John 4.20 it says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? We're going to take the Passover in a couple of months. And again, we'll be thinking about that, and we'll be hearing messages about that, preparing for that. But you know, when we take the Passover, we're reminded, it's very profound. It's such a personal thing, the Passover is, it, it, it has to do with our personal relationship with God and that, that Christ is our personal Savior and we are personally ingesting Him and figuratively eating His flesh, drinking His blood on Passover night. We, we do it in symbols, the bread and the wine, but we also are there with our brethren. It's not just us alone. It's not just us and God. He died for those who sit next to us too. Not just for us. Jesus Christ came to bring a different culture. Every nation has its culture, doesn't it? The way things are done, the norms, the, what's expected. And it doesn't take long to figure out uh, in every country and culture that that sometimes things are not valued the same as other cultures. You know, in this country, in, the, in America, we, we value independence. We value being able to step out on your own and, and do it yourself. You know, that is not a value in a lot of other countries around the world. In some countries around the world, they value more uh, working within the family, working within the group. Don't step out beyond what the group approves, what the family approves. And you know what? Sometimes that value is important, isn't it? Sometimes independence is important. There's a place for both. The point is that no nation has a monopoly on what or has the ultimate culture. God has the ultimate culture. Christ came bringing a different culture. <clears throat> and when we come into the truth, those of you who are first generation Christians, when you came to the church for the first time, you became exposed to the truth. You began to sense that there's a different culture here. And you began to respond to that culture. God's culture way of thinking, way of doing things. Second generation Christians, we, we, can, we can think that they just grow up in the culture so they don't have to really learn it. It just comes by nature. Uh-uh. They have human nature. And God's culture 
is in contrast to human nature. So guess what? Second generations have to also, little by little as they grow, come to the point where they embrace God's culture. Just like first generation. One aspect of God's culture is that Jesus Christ values and loves and died for everyone. We don't have time to turn there today, but in Luke 10 and 25, verse 25, it talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, you know, in our day and age, we we throw this uh, term out, this phrase out, Good Samaritan. We have Good Samaritan laws, right? That means those who are willing to help in an emergency or have certain protections in, uh, on in a legal basis. You know, in the, in the Jewish culture, putting the word good and Samaritan together just would not have made sense. Good Samaritan was not something that they threw around in that culture. And that's why it was so shocking when, when Christ made the Samaritan the hero of that story. It was sort of an oxymoron to those who heard it, but he made the Samaritan the one who showed he was a neighbor. What was Christ teaching? What was he trying to explain? That antagonism and bitterness and hatred has no place in his culture. Let's turn over to um, Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, you know, is there anyone that that we look down on? Is there anyone that we feel like um, the universe would not be big enough for the both of us to live in, you know, in God's kingdom? If that's, and I know we don't consciously think that, but, you know, if, if that's hard to imagine being in God's kingdom with anyone then we're the one with the problem. We're the one that has to make the change. We're the one who has to think that through. Because it's God's desire that all men be saved. That none should perish. That all would come to the truth. Luke 17 and verse 11. He said... uh, in, in verse 11, now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was as they went, they were cleansed. They were, they were freed from this horrible, horrible illness of leprosy, which would mean them being cut off from society. Incurable. But he healed them. They were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was one of those dreaded Samaritans. Of all the people that would respond in faith and thankfulness. He was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten clans? Where are the nine? Were there not any found to return to give glory to God except this foreigner? The implication is he was talking to others. He was maybe talking to a crowd that was gathered. You know, the implication perhaps was the others were, were, were Israelites. You know, what was wrong with them? Why didn't they have the faith to at least give thanks? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. The disciples apparently had absorbed too much of this culture. Because in verse 51 of Luke chapter 9, It came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. 
But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So, you know, apparently it was clear that he was not going to stay there to do works, to do his work. He was passing through. He was on his way to Jerusalem. And there was all this antagonism, so they didn't receive him. They didn't want to be hospitable to him because he wasn't planning to stay to help them. So, verse 54, And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now the question is, I don't know, would they have reacted so strongly if this had been a city of Judea or Galilee? Was it that this was a city of the Samaritans? I don't know. Just a, just a question. James and John. The rivalry between Samaria and Judea was, was, was ongoing. <clears throat> and as we, as our world gets more and more torn apart, let's remember our responsibility to one another, to family members, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, parents to children, children to parents to brethren, to neighbors, to the whole world, to follow Christ's example. And that is to love everyone. Even when sometimes they don't love us. To do everything in our power, as, is, as we can, to not have a spirit of bitterness or hatred toward them. Let's go back to John chapter 4. To the same verse, verse 9. We're getting a lot out of one verse here. John chapter 4, verse 9. Again, talking about the woman of Samaria, Samaria uh, who said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan, and a woman? You know, Jesus showed something else here as well. He showed respect to a woman. And we can see that as a little bit later in the story in verse 27 when the disciples came back from the city buying food, it says they marveled that he talked with a woman. Marveled. This brings us to our second lesson or point. And that is that Jesus Christ held women in high esteem. Jesus Christ held women in high esteem. Not only was he challenging cultural norms regarding Samaritans. He was also challenging cultural norms in talking to this woman. Now first, let's not assume that women were horribly treated in Judea. Actually, Hebrew women enjoyed an unusual degree of rights and respect compared to the pagan world. We can read of this in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It says, under the Hebrew system, the position of woman was in marked contrast with her status in surrounding heathen nations. Her liberties were greater, her employments more varied and important, her social standing more respectful. Even Greece and Rome at the time of their supreme culture fell far below the Hebrew conception of woman's preeminent worth. So, so talking about the whole system, even from the patriarchs down and, and beyond that, frankly, the system that God put in place gave honor to women that was not to be found in the pagan world. Isn't that amazing when people today say this book degrades women and puts down women when the system that God put in place actually raise them to a, 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 a place of honor compared to what women suffered in the world at that time. So speaking of the Greeks, uh, the, the, the 
International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says this, Aristotle considered women inferior beings, intermediate between free men and slaves. Socrates and Demosthenes held them in like depreciation. Plato advocated community of wives, and substantially the same views prevailed in Rome. You know, the great enlightenment, the great enlightened Greek society, that's what they thought of women. That's how they looked at women. All these great thinkers, all these supposedly great philosophers, that's what they thought of of women. The same views prevailed in Rome. Distinguished men of these cultures advocated marriage only as a public duty. More honor was shown the courtesan, courtesan than the wife. Chastity and modesty, the choice inheritance of Hebrew womanhood, was foreign to the Greek concept of morality and disappeared from Rome when Greek culture and frivolity entered. Under pagan culture and heathen darkness, women were universally subjected to inferior and degrading conditions. The Greek, Roman, pagan culture. I wonder if we, I think we do, but I just appreciate just how much God's way has changed our lives. We, we understand that. But how much his culture, how important it is. And where we would be without it. Even in our nations that have adopted, you know, have some semblance of an acknowledgement of a creator. Every decline in her status in the Hebrew commonwealth was due to the incursion of foreign influence. Among the Hebrews, women administered the affairs of the home with a liberty and leadership unknown to other Oriental peoples. Think of the Proverbs 31 woman. Her domestic duties were more independent, varied, and honorable. She was not the slave or the menial of her husband. Her outdoor occupations were congenial, healthful, and extensive. End quote. Really interesting. You think of what what the the Hebrews, what God through His people brought into the world. So women in Judea actually were afforded a radically different life than in the Gentile world. And even today, you you watch the news, you think about the, you know, what, what do they call them? Honor honor killings when. Uh, in some countries when a woman is raped and the, the, the family is so shamed that family members will execute her because she has brought shame on the family. Or in some cultures where they cover the woman from head to toe and take away her identity totally in their strange view of morality. This is a book that liberates women from that kind of slavery. God designed women to occupy a place of honor. There were some man-made traditions which had come about by the time that we read about here. Uh, Just like Christ said, the Pharisees had added traditions and man-made laws which were a burden there were some traditions regarding women that had been added, uh, such as a man could not talk to a woman in a public place, especially if he was a teacher or a a distinguished leader of society, which is exactly what Christ was doing, which is exactly why the disciples were surprised. And apparently there were even some rules that, um, that a man and a wife could not talk in public. You know, crazy stuff. Never intended by, by God. But these were some traditions that Christ came to, to magnify the law, to make it honorable, to explain it, to explain its intent. And that's why we read the Gospels to see how he have lived his life. And that's why it's so valuable to see that God came down to live with us and show us how to apply the laws and breathe life into them. And show their intent in the, in the spirit. 
going on in the, this encyclopedia. It says, the ancient Hebrews never entirely lost the light of their original revelation and more than any other Oriental race held women in high esteem, honor, and affection. Christianity completed the work of her restoration to equality of opportunity and place. Not feminism. We'll talk about that in a moment. Not feminism. But equality of, of, of men and women being judged on their own works before God and having an equal opportunity to be in God's family and be in God's kingdom on their own works based on, based on the gift. Sorry, our works don't earn us that, of course. But based on the gift that is being offered to men and to women individually. Every knee will bow before Christ. There is no partiality in the law. Not feminism, but the point that men and women are all responsible before God how we conduct our lives. It says, wherever its teachings and spirit prevail, she has made the loved companion, confidant, and advisor of her husband. From the first, women were responsive to his teachings and devoted to his person. The sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, made their home at Bethany, his dearest earthly refuge and resting place. Women of all ranks in society found in him a benefactor and a friend before unknown in all the history of their sex. So Jesus showed respect and honor to women. And that was radical in the pagan nations and even to some in Judea because of the traditions that had developed. That took an adjustment. Now again, was Jesus advocating feminism? Absolutely not. Let's go back to John 4, and we keep reading. He had this conversation with her about uh, the living water, and finally she said, Sir, give me, verse 15, this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, verse 16, Go, call your husband, and come here. Was, was Jesus telling her to throw off the bonds of her wicked husband? You know, that old brute. Just, you don't have to listen to him anymore. No, of course not. He validated the role that her husband had and confirmed his position in the family. Again, we're talking about a culture that Christ was bringing, that honor is given to the woman. Respect is given to the man, and they both fulfill their roles in marriage, in, in family. Now, of course, this is radical. You know, even in, in our day when, when uh, males don't even know if they're males anymore, or females don't know if they're females, even if their birth certificate says it, you'd think it would be fairly clear. But you know, there are other aspects of our culture today. For some, a woman's right to bear her body, to use her allure as a power, is the ultimate independence and power. But does that really give woman respect? Does that give a woman honor? Actually, that's falling right into the trap of the Greek culture, isn't it? And yet, what does, what does porn, what does racy movies, what does you know, inappropriate stuff on the Internet, what does that do that degrades women, that treats them as a sex object? Women don't get respect that way by flaunting their bodies. You know, we need to reinforce with our young women. That's not the type of attention you want to get. Just because the world values that. Just because in this world which has absorbed, really, is reenacting the, the values of Greek culture. Just because that's what they say gives you value, doesn't mean it's true. That's the world's culture. There's a better way. It's a better way to attract the right kind of guy who will respect you because you respect yourself. Who will value you because you see that God values you. 
Because he made you. He made all in his image. And God gave women beauty to use in a right and modest and tasteful and wonderful way. You know, at the other end of the spectrum, we also have a society which tells women, the only way you can be valued is to trying to be like a man. In fact, be a, be, be a man better than men are, you know. Go out and do better than they can in the world of men. In the career world. Prove that you can do anything a man can do. Frankly, you can do it better, you know. Then you have value. Isn't that what the world says today? You know, what was ever wrong with the valued and esteemed and honorable God-given occupation as a life goal of being a wife and a mother? What was ever wrong with that? And yet that is laughed at today. You know, in the church of God, we are revaluing that. We are recapturing true values. We talk about that. That's God's culture. Let's continue to lift that up and encourage our girls who desire that to say, that's wonderful that you want that. To be a wife. To be a mother. If God gives you that opportunity. You don't have to find some other way to get value. There's a quote from a book, Passionate Housewives Desperate for God. I like this quote. It says, of course, much of the world would agree that being a housekeeper is acceptable as long as you're not caring for your own home. Right? If you're caring for your own home, eh, you know, you're just not really capable, are you? Treating men with attentive devotion would also be right as long as the man is the boss in the office and not your husband. Think about it. Is that not the value this world teaches? Caring for children would even be deemed heroic service for which presidential awards could be given as long as the children are someone else's and not your own. Brethren, in our modern age today, when, when norms are being thrown out the window, when, when our young people are being challenged on matters of culture and values, our challenge is to help them absorb God's culture, not the world's. And it's encouraging to see so many young ladies in the church growing up and taking their honorable role and place beside husbands and working with children in the home. Christ values women, and he upholds their role. And he upholds the role of the men. And that's our job to uphold as well. The point is that God's way works, and God's way is really about valuing human beings. And he was explaining this in his interaction with the woman of Samaria at the well. There's a third point we can learn from his interactions with the Samaritans. And that is while Jesus loved all people, while he valued all people, he affirmed you know, all the words that we use today, he did not hold back from telling the truth. He did not hold back from speaking the truth in doing the work. Let's go back there to John chapter 4 and verse 9. Again, she asked him, you know, Why do you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said, You have nothing, sir, to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Verse 13, whoever, he said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. 
But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And of course, she came to that well, you know, however often she had to come. So she was very interested in water that would, uh, she wouldn't have to be, keep renewing it. She said, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And he said, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And that's when it got really interesting. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. What had happened? You know, whether, whether, whether she'd been divorced, whether she had lost five husbands to death, whatever was going on, the one she was now living with was not her husband. So she had some problems that she had to deal with. And he didn't shy away from bringing that out. You know, Jesus Christ was, was, was kind, was compassionate, was loving, was thoughtful, and yet he told her the truth. He said, I'm not going to mince words. You have a problem. There's something you've got to deal with. You're living in immorality. Brethren, what is our work doing today? You know, we try to say it in, in the nicest words possible and in, a, in a, a positive way, but we've got to tell the truth, don't we? We have to tell this world the truth. That's true love. You know, this also makes you think of the future, how we read in Isaiah how in the future there will be a voice behind people saying, this is the way, walk you in it. Sometimes we may just think that's all going to be about a bolt of lightning and a clap of thunder and, and scaring people to death. Maybe this will be what it's like sometimes, where we'll be talking to people and trying to counsel them and help them and explain to them and we'll actually be able to understand exactly what the problem is because we can read their mind. We can read their thoughts. And we won't be cruel about it, but there won't be any he said, she said. There won't be any confusion about what the issue is. We'll be able to cut through the confusion and really help people and help them to face themselves, which is exactly what Christ did here. Jesus Christ was committed to the truth. Committed to the truth in doing the work. And he was going to tell her exactly, in a nice way, in a kind way, in a compassionate way, but tell her the truth. She said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. That must have shocked her because her, the issue was who's right, the Jews or the Samaritans. But he was saying, you know what, there's a higher reality that everybody is going to have to learn. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. He was teaching her the truth. He was explaining to her and helping her to see you're worshiping a God that, that you think you know, but you don't. Isn't that much of the content of our message as well? To this Christian, so-called Christian world? You know, so many people out there who, who are sincere, who are trying to do what they can, who are trying to hold the line in this crazy, radical, 
world where liberal values continue to steamroll and people who are conservative are trying to hold the line, but they're confused why things happen. But they don't have the whole truth. And our message is not just to love everybody, but to tell the world you know not whom you worship. And there is a true God who has a true way that we are bringing to you. Somewhere on this earth is God's church. Somewhere on this earth are people who are God's people doing his work. You know, we must never be holier than thou about it. or We must never be haughty about it. But also, we must never forget who we are. And what's been given to us. Christ said salvation is of the Jews. He didn't say every opinion is of equal value. What a priceless opportunity that that all of us have to be a part of the work that is taking the truth to the world. Even though it hurts sometimes. In verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, and don't you think the hair on the back of her neck stood up? He, she, he said, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. You know, apparently she knew enough of the truth that she recognized that was a reality, that, that the Messiah was coming. And for him to actually tell her, I am the one. Wow. Just imagine what that must have been like. She left and she got a whole bunch of the men in the city. And it says in verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. You know, that's someone who you've got to stand up and listen to. He told me all the stuff from my past. How did he know that? So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. What a testimony to that group of Samaritans, the the dreaded, despised, Horrible, probably ugly Samaritans, you know. Just kidding, I don't think they were ugly. What a testimony. How many places did Jesus go where they did not receive him, and yet this group of people did? It's also interesting when the disciples came back and told him uh, they, they brought food, And in the meantime, verse 31, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And they were confused because they went to get him food. So did someone else bring you food while we were gone? And uh, verse 34, and Jesus said to them, and, and think about this as we read this. Think about the context. Think about the context of one of the central verses in the whole Bible about about the work and about doing God's will and about why we're here and about what drives us and, and, and our whole purpose and existence in the church today. And it was all in the context of these foreigners, the Samaritans. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And it wasn't even in the context of other Jews. Again, how does that, what does that mean for how God's Christ sees the whole world? Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. 
I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Perhaps that was at the time of uh, uh, where where the um, <clears throat> the grain was already coming up and was ready to harvest. Apparently so, but he also was making a a spiritual lesson, saying, "Look around you. You may not think there's a lot of potential in this area here in Samaria." But the fields are white for harvest. And you're entering into other labors, others' labors. You know, the same is true for us. We wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for others who who came before us and labored and sacrificed and gave of themselves and gave of their time and gave of their resources so the work could be done, so that we could be here and continue it. We're a part of an awesome work. One of the biggest opportunities in all of human history. To be living at the time just before Christ's return. One of the most exciting times in all of human history and to help prepare for the way of the Messiah to come back. Wow! What an awesome opportunity that we have to hold on to and to go forward with. Incredible. You know, it's interesting that even though Christ did not during His ministry make going into Samaria a big part of his ministry. He, he had told the disciples in one place, go not in the cities of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But notice what it says in Acts chapter 1. Because something changed after his death and resurrection. Acts chapter 1 In verse 6, Therefore, when they had come together and they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and... Oops, that must be a typo. Are you kidding me? Of all places, Samaria? Samaria. The third point of launching the work. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. You know, from an apostate, dejected nation filled with pagans who, who feared God according to their own imagination, Samaria became the third step in taking the gospel to the world. What, a, what an honor. Acts 8 and verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death, that is, uh, Stephen's. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And Samaria. Interesting. That's where some of the disciples went when there was persecution. Verse 4. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Look at how the, the gospel flourished in Samaria. Samaria. 
and they were baptized. Simon also was baptized. That's a totally uh, different story for another time. But it says then that apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. You know, it's interesting. Notice that these were not considered entirely Gentile people. Otherwise, there would have been, this would have rocked their world, right? Because remember, later on when Cornelius was baptized, it had to take a special miracle to convince them that God was opening the gospel to the Gentiles. The Samaritans were were not quite Jews, but they were not quite Gentiles. They were sort of somewhere in between. They were baptized. They received God's Spirit. And in, in Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, you know, maybe we can think of this in, in, in some ways in terms of a lot of people in this world who aren't out-and-out pagans, who aren't, you know, worshiping Buddha, and, 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 and uh, they're not Hindu, and they're not, uh, you know, worshiping pagan gods. They have a basic belief in God. They have a foundation of a belief in a God of the Bible, but they don't know the whole truth. And when their understanding is open, they will be amazed. You know, we have one of our men in the Philippines years ago, one of our ministers had been, as when he was a young man, his, he had been a Catholic. Everybody's Catholic in the Philippines, virtually. And his daughter had been very, very sick unto death, and he was very concerned about her. His name was Gorgonio de Guia. He died a few years ago. And he was a fisherman, so he went down to the sea, and he prayed. He wasn't particularly religious before that, but he prayed. And he said, God, Jesus, if you are the one that I've heard about in when I go to church in the Bible, when that who was here on earth, who went around healing people, if that's you up there and, and you're real and you hear me and you heal my daughter, then I will follow you the rest of my life. And that was how he became converted. She was healed. And he became the one known around the village to, if you have anyone who is sick, you have him pray for them and they'll get better. Even before he was in the church. If there is a foundation of a God, a God of the Bible, you know, when their eyes are open, it will be exciting. It will be exciting. It will be easier in that sense. God will take the gospel to the whole world. But those who have a foundation, we're trying to reach them. And with God's help, those who he is calling uh, will, will, will do his will. Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. It says in verse 31, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. You know, Samaria has a special place in the story of the Christian church. It was one of the first places that received the truth as the church grew. In spite of its checkered past, in spite of this bitter antagonism that Samaria had with Judea, We can learn a lot from Christ's interaction with them, starting with his conversation with this woman at the well. We are learning a new culture. What does that culture include? 
Number one, that Christ values all people because they're made in the image of God and we should value them too. Not falling into a pattern of anger and hostility and hatred. Even for those who don't respond in kind. Also, that Christ values women and we should too and really strive to recapture how He defines the role And not just go along with the world for women's roles or men's roles. And thirdly, that Christ values showing love, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth. He's heading his work to take that loving and that challenging gospel to the world, isn't he? Brethren, let's show ourselves faithful to God's culture as we fulfill our Father's will through Christ, as He told His disciples, taking the gospel of the kingdom to Jerusalem, to Judea, and to that horrible place, Samaria. No, not so horrible a place. And to the ends of the earth. 